Today, we are starting off a new sermon series called Gospel in Life, Grace Changes Everything. And in this series, we're going to be looking at how grace changes everything in our lives, how the gospel of grace changes the way that we approach various different aspects of our lives. Um, And the theme that we're going to be looking at today is a very important theme. Uh, We're going to be looking at the biblical teaching relating to the relationship between Christians and the outside world. How does the church relate to the world around us? And we're going to be looking at three primary texts today. One is from the New Testament letters, and, and it will be emphasizing that we are to not be the same as the people around us. And then we're going to look at a a passage from the Old Testament prophets, which emphasizes the the need for the people of God to be engaged with the unbelieving world. And then we're going to finish by looking at a passage from the teachings of Jesus himself that talks about a balance between those two uh, themes. And we're going to be looking at Hebrews 11 in a moment here, but I want to tell a little bit of a story that uh, relates to uh, the, the teaching from Hebrews 11 here. Um, for, uh, for about 10 years, I was a missionary in South Africa and uh, lived in South Africa. Two of my kids were born over there. Um, lived in Johannesburg most of that time and in Durban part of the time. And uh, one of the things that happened one day, I used to go to this coffee shop there. It was called Mug and Bean. And Mug and Bean had this fictitious story about how their founders were Americans and had started this coffee shop and stuff. It was really just a South African shop, but it was trying to be like an American coffee shop. And uh, one of my favorite uh, holiday things to, not really to eat, but to drink, is eggnog. I really enjoy eggnog around the Christmas season. I have to restrain myself, or I would look like Santa Claus because I would drink so much eggnog. But, um, but anyway, I really like eggnog. But they don't have eggnog in South Africa. They they don't know what it is. They'd never seen an eggnog before. But one time I went into Mug and Bean, and it was on the menu, eggnog latte, which is my favorite way to drink eggnog, is as a latte. And I was like, hey, great, I'm going to get an eggnog latte. So I ordered it, and it came, and it didn't look like an eggnog latte. And I started to drink it, and it didn't really taste like an eggnog latte. And it also had, like, it's kind of like orange juice pulp in it. And so I asked the waiter, this is a restaurant where waiters come to your table. So the guy came around and I said, hey, where did you guys get the eggnog that you put in this? Do you guys make your own eggnog or where did you get it from? It's like, I don't know. All I know is that when, whenever somebody orders one of these, then the, the cook like fries an egg and chops it up really small and puts it <laughs> in the latte. <laughs> so that was my eggnog latte that I got in, uh, in South Africa. I didn't, I didn't finish it. But... Um, But anyway, uh, that experience of being a foreigner in another country where the things that I really liked from home were not available to me, and even when I thought maybe it was, uh, you can ask me later about the chili dog that I uh, also almost ordered one time. Um, But anyway, um, in Hebrews 11, we have a story about someone who was a foreigner in a foreign land. like I was in that situation. I'm going to read, uh, starting with verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 11, where it says, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, 
obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. So this, of course, is referring to the story of Abraham from the book of Genesis, uh, at the beginning of the Bible. Abraham and his wife are told by God, pack up and leave everything that you know. Uh, leave your own place, your own people, your own culture, your own home, and go to this new place that I'm going to show you. And they literally packed up all their things and moved to a new land away from all that they had grown up with and all that they had known. And they never went back. Um, but when they eventually got to the new place that God was showing them, uh, God told them not to settle down there. They never settled in the promised land. They did not become a part of the culture of their new country. They lived there as strangers and aliens. They literally lived in tents and never bought or purchased a home while they were there. They did not integrate into the people of Canaan, but they lived as strangers in a foreign country. And it wasn't just Abraham. For four generations, they continued to live like that in the land of Canaan. And then after four generations, they all moved to Egypt where they continued to live as a separate people, a minority group living separately in a foreign nation for the next four centuries. And that is not a comfortable way to live. I don't just mean living in a tent as opposed to living in a home. Like the Canaanites around them had like proper houses and cities with fortified walls to protect them from dangers. And they had their, their community around them of, uh, of, of like-minded people and, and all of that. A Abraham and his descendants didn't have any of that. But, um, but also, besides just the difficulty of living like that, um, he, just living as a foreigner among a people who speak a different language than you speak, who eat different foods than you're used to, who dress differently than you're used to, have some different values than what you have, and they just have a different culture than you do. It's, um, it, it's challenging for life to live like that. And uh, during that time when I was in South Africa, it wasn't just the eggnog. Um, they have 17 official languages there. So people are speaking all these different uh, languages that I don't understand. Uh, the people there like rugby instead of football. They play cricket instead of baseball. They, uh, they have this stuff called cream soda there, but it's green and it tastes like medicine. Um, they don't celebrate Thanksgiving. They eat ostrich steaks. And, and in the days when we were there, there was no Starbucks in the whole country. Now, now they have it, but they, they're civilized now. But, but we had to leave all that stuff. But here's the main thing. When you are a foreigner... You're an outsider, and it's not always nice to be an outsider, um, to be different from the people around you. But that's what Abraham and his descendants were called to do. And it's in verse 10 that it explains what were they thinking in, in living this way. Why did they uh, agree to God's instruction? It says, verse 10, 
For he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Now, there's the, the, the contrast between Abraham's tent, which just had the ground for a foundation, and Abraham's uh, aspiration to the city that God would build with foundations built by God himself. Uh, like I said, Abraham did not have that settled city with walls of protection and the community of fellow citizens and all that security and comfort that the people around him had. Uh, he, though, did have the city of God to look forward to. He was following God, and although it meant being an outsider during his lifetime on earth, he knew that following God in this way would lead to a new and better home, a permanent home with God in eternity. And, and if we skip down a couple of verses, we see this explained a little more in verse 13, where it says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. So Abraham and his people never received the permanent home with God during their lifetime. They died without receiving the things that God had promised them. But they understood that this life is not all that there is. They understood that as the people of God, their true home, their true citizenship is not anywhere on this earth. They were not just foreigners and aliens because they left their home and went to Canaan. They would have been foreigners and aliens if they had stayed home in Ur too because they were different. They were different, and that is a model for us. We are also to think of ourselves as foreigners and aliens on earth. We are not the same as the people around us. We are called to be different. It's, it's said like this in the, the letter in the Bible to the church at Rome says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't be like the rest of the world. Be transformed. Be transformed into a new kind of person, a, the, the, a person who follows the will of God, his good, pleasing, perfect will. And in many other places in the Bible, it teaches the same idea of the, the need for the people of God to be different from the people around us. Another great example is in the book of 1 Peter. Right at the beginning of the letter, he's explaining who he's writing to. And he says that he's, he's writing to, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. See, he calls Christians exiles scattered throughout these places. But here's the thing is they were not exiles in any kind of a physical sense. These were people who had grown up in these cities and towns, who had, who had lived in these places their whole lives. But uh, they had responded to the preaching 
of the gospel. When the apostles came to their area and they heard the gospel message about Jesus, they responded. And so they were living so differently from the way that they used to live that it was like they were exiles living there. They were different. They were, they're citizens of heaven now. And they are strangers in the place where they grew up. Their values and their worldview and their ways are different. They had not literally moved to another country like Abraham, but they were living like foreigners nonetheless. And that teaching, as I said, is throughout the Bible. The people of God are called to be different from the people around us. And as the people of God, we have a different worldview. We just see things differently. We have different ethics. We spend our time differently, our money differently. The difference is to be much more than just showing up here on Sunday morning instead of staying home. So we are different. But that doesn't answer the question, though, of how then are we as different people to relate to those around us? How do we relate to the broader culture? Um, one approach that some Christians have taken is to try to be as separate from the unbelieving culture around them as possible. And the extreme version of this, of course, is monks, monks who go off and live in a monastery somewhere out in the wilderness and spend all their time in prayer and studying the scriptures and doing religious rituals and a little bit of uh, uh, simple work to, to uh, maintain themselves, but they are just separated and isolated. They don't get married. They don't have families that tie them to the outside world. And they're in like these little fortresses trying to keep all of the evil influences away from them so that they can be pure and holy, and they minimize all the contact they can with the world outside their monasteries. But is that what God has in mind for his people? Does he want us to form Christian fortresses where we can hide from the world and keep out all the secular influences? Absolutely not. God wants his church to be involved in the world around us. In his uh, famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told his followers this. He said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. The you here is followers of Jesus. The others then are people who are not followers of Jesus. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So as salt and light, we are to be influencing the world around us. And these others... Other people are to see our light shining and glorify God. And this principle is taught very clearly in chapter 29 of the book of Jeremiah. So you can flip over there or click on your phone or whatever you're doing to get to these passages. But Jeremiah 29 is where we are next. And before I read the passage, though, there's some historical background information that you need to understand in order to understand what uh, Jeremiah is talking about here. So here's the, the, the story, is that um, God's people 
had been living as a Jewish nation uh, called to be different from the nations around them and to worship God at the temple in Jerusalem and to be in a, the covenant people of God. And, um, but they hadn't been doing a very good job of it. In fact, they had broken God's covenant to the extent that God brought on them the judgment that he had warned them about. And that judgment came in the form of an invasion from Babylon. And if you remember a few weeks ago in the Isaiah series, we talked about how the Assyrians had invaded and Hezekiah and Isaiah had gone to God and asked for help and God had miraculously intervened and saved them from the Assyrians. But this time, the people did not turn to God for help and God did not miraculously intervene and King Nebuchadnezzar came in and crushed God's people and conquered them. And when the fighting was done, Nebuchadnezzar took from among the survivors many of the people away into exile in Babylon. He chose all the best educated, strongest, most skilled people of the land and forced them to move to Babylon and settle there so that they could be part of the workforce of Babylon. And when they arrived in Babylon, God's people were not sure how they ought to relate to the Babylonians that they were now living among. Um, and there were some reasons why you could be unsure here, right? I mean, first of all, this was the nation that had just fought a war against them, killed many of their friends and neighbors and family, and then had forced them off into exile in this foreign land. That can create some... <laughs> some animosity and some tension. And now the people of God are there living as a small minority in the midst of all of their enemies. Aside from that, the culture of Babylon was just very different from where they had come from. Most importantly, the people here did not acknowledge God. Or rather, they acknowledged many gods, many false gods, all their idols. They were very religious people. They weren't secular. They had all their temples and idols and things all around, but they did not acknowledge the true creator of the universe. And Babylon had such a reputation that the name became just a kind of a, a, a term for a wicked and oppressive city. So how should the people of God relate to Babylon? Well, they could have simply assimilated into the new land, right? They could have just said, okay, we're here now. Forget Israel. Forget all of that. We're just going to be Babylonians. And we're just going to start doing everything the way the people here do it. And we'll just become indistinguishable from the people around us. But they knew what we've just been talking about, that the people of God are called to be different. And they rightly held on to that and knew that they could not simply assimilate into Babylon. So should they then be like the monks and, and isolate themselves as much as possible and create little fortress cities for themselves and, and, and try to have as little contact with the Babylonians as they possibly could? That actually seemed like a really good idea to a lot of them. And in fact, there were some who decided they would just uh, claim that they were prophets of God 
and that God had given them a message for the people. And the message was, we need to remain separate and we need to remain hostile to these people around us. And uh, the thing was that God had not sent those prophets. And uh, in fact, if you read the rest of Jeremiah 29 that we're not going to talk about today, you'll see some what God's response was directly to those guys. He names them by name and calls them out as false prophets um, and is very angry with them. Um, but what God did do is he sent his true prophet, Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah uh, had not been taken away into exile. He was still back in Jerusalem, but he was aware through some form of communication what was going on and had heard about these false prophets, and God inspired him to then write a letter to those who had been taken away to Babylon, uh, inspired by God to write words from God for the people that were over there. And that's what Jeremiah 29 is. This is the letter that... Uh, God inspired Jeremiah to write, to give instructions to the people on how they should relate to the people in Babylon. And here it is in verse 4 is where I'm going to start reading. It says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I have carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there and do not decrease. God wants his people to settle down and live among the Babylonians. Not just to be there for a short time. Uh, the, the false prophets were saying, don't worry, God's going to save us. We're going to be back in Jerusalem in just a few years. And God says, no, it's going to be a long time. You need to settle in Babylon. And then in the next verse is really the key verse of this passage for, for, the, for our topic today. Verse 7 says, also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers you too will prosper. Boy, that's, that's, that's it. That's the instruction of how they are to relate to the people of Babylon. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. The people of God are not to be hostile toward the people who have conquered them and carried them away. Rather, they are to seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon. And also notice here that God says twice, actually, in this passage, he says that he is actually the one who carried them away into exile. God is the one who put them there. You see, uh, this is saying that it was God's will for his people to live among the people of this pagan city. God had broader plans than just the peace and prosperity of his own chosen people. God wanted his people to be in Babylon and for them to be his servants and for them to seek the peace and prosperity of the people of Babylon. Why? 
Well, because God loves sinful people. God loves sinful people. He wants what is good for them. And he wants his people to have his heart for them too. Obviously, that'll include teaching them about the truth of the one true God and teaching them good theology. But it is broader than that. God's people are to build houses in Babylon and to settle down there, to live among the people and to seek the peace and prosperity of the wider culture. In the metaphors that Jesus used, they are to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world in Babylon. But being salt and light is more than only telling people about Jesus. In that passage from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said the outside world would see the good deeds that Christians were doing. And obviously here in Jeremiah, seeking the good of Babylon is more than just praying for them, right? Praying for them is explicitly commanded. It says we must pray for uh, the, the people of Babylon, the people around us. But that's not the only thing that they're commanded to do. Yes, we have to have a spiritual ministry to the people around us, but seeking peace and prosperity for Babylon is more than only a spiritual ministry. The Hebrew word for peace in this passage is shalom. And shalom is, is, a, is a very important uh, theological word here. It means a lot more than just absence of conflict, right? We think the basic meaning of peace is you're not fighting, right? That's peace. But shalom is much bigger than that. Some of the English words that overlap in meaning with shalom include completeness, soundness, welfare, peace, safety, health, prosperity, quiet, tranquility, and contentment. Shalom is a very broad term. And through his prophet Jeremiah, God tells his people to seek the shalom of the unbelievers around them. So in the Hebrews passage, we've seen that the people of God are to live differently. They're to live as strangers and aliens in the world, not conforming to the pattern of life that the non-believing world follows. But in Jeremiah, we see that living with an adversarial posture toward the outside world uh, is, is also not God's will for his people. God wants his people engaged with the world and seeking their peace and prosperity. So now let's look at the passage from the Gospel of John uh, where we'll see uh, this, these two ideas brought into some balance, I believe, by Jesus in John chapter 17. This is... Um, John chapter 17 takes place uh, just after the, the, the Last Supper. We're going to have communion in a few minutes, which will be a remembrance of the Last Supper. This is the same day that Jesus is teaching these things as when he, uh, when he did that. And, um, and here, it, the, the passage we're going to read is a prayer that Jesus is praying to his Father for his followers. So that, uh, when you see the, the pronouns here, that's who he's, he's talking to God about the people who are his followers. So uh, here it is, uh, John chapter 17, starting in verse 14. 
It says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. So here we clearly see that the followers of Jesus are not of this world. Um, and because we are different, the world will often reject us or hate us just the way that it rejected Jesus. Then he goes on in verse 15, he says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. You would think if the world is, is going to uh, reject God's people, then they should just get out. But no, Jesus says he doesn't want his people to be removed from the world. He doesn't ask God to do it, and he doesn't want his people to do it themselves. And the reason for that is going to be clear in a couple of verses here. Uh, next verse, verse 16 and 17, it says, They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. God's people are to be sanctified. Now, there's a, there's a church word that we don't use every day, but what does sanctified mean? What, is, what does it mean to be sanctified? It means to be pure and separate from sin and evil. God's people know the word of God, and that knowledge shows us a way to live that is pure and holy and pleasing to God. But, but in the last verse, Jesus said he doesn't want his people to be removed from the world. There's a tension here. Sanctified, different, strangers and aliens, uh, but living in the world among the people of Babylon. That's, it's, it's, a, it's a tension. And the next verse is the climax of the theme in this passage. Uh, verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus is sending his people out into the world to bring the message of salvation, to bring healing, to bring freedom, to bring truth, to bring love, to bring salvation, to bring shalom. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. And that's the tension. That's the balancing act, the, the narrow path that Christians need to navigate as we go into the world on this mission from Jesus. In the world, but not of the world. So as you're going on that narrow path, you can fall off on either side. And we have to avoid falling off onto the right. If we fall off onto the right, we're emphasizing separation from the world for the sake of purity and sanctification. So in, in, in 20th century American churches, um, there was a, a, a movement in the, in the history of the churches in America uh, called fundamentalism. And fundamentalists preached great theology. They stuck to the pure truth of God. They believed in solid theology, uh, theology in terms of their commitment to fundamental truths. And that included things like the authority of the Bible, the deity of Jesus, the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross as the only payment for sins. Solid theology. 
But the weakness of the fundamentalist movement is that it became a movement focused on withdrawal from the culture around it. They saw that culture was moving in a more secular direction, and they reacted by taking up an adversarial stance toward culture. They believed that they were called out from among the sinful people, and they were to minimize contact with the secular culture. But how are we to be salt and light to a needy world? How are we to seek the shalom of Babylon if we are isolated from the culture around us? And so they failed to be in the world, but not of the world. But then there was another major movement in the 20th century American churches uh, that falls off to the left-hand side of the path, and that was called liberalism. And liberals also saw that the culture was moving away from traditional Christian values and traditional understandings about the spiritual world and about morality, and so they conformed to those cultural trends. They abandoned theological truth that was not in line with the broader culture. They taught that Jesus was just a very wise man who taught many good things. They downplayed sin and guilt. Instead of people needing to be saved from their deserved guilt and condemnation from a righteous God on judgment day, they taught that people needed to be saved from feeling guilty. And they conformed to the pattern of this world. And they failed to be in the world, but not of the world. And both of those sides are still a temptation to each of us today. We, we are very much in danger of falling off to the right or to the left. But where we need to be is somewhere between that adversarial withdrawal and misguided conformity. Both of those options are unfaithful to God's will for us, and they miss the point of Jesus' call to be in the world, but not of the world. So how does this really work itself out in our lives? What are the specific issues that this changes? How should we live in light of these truths, where is the balance between these two errors? Well, first, there's, there's one more foundational thing that we need to talk about, and then we'll talk about some specific things a little bit. But, but you remember we, we uh, uh, oh, let me say first, if you really want to talk about and think about how all this applies to your life, get in one of those journey groups that is doing... Um, the study that is tied to the sermon series, that's what they're going to do this week. They're going to talk about these ideas. We're going to get a little extra teaching on a video from Timothy Keller and then discussion of some of the passages and talking about the implications of this stuff. So if you find this stuff interesting and you would like to, to dive into it a little more, get in one of those groups. Um, okay, but the other, the other foundational truth that we got to talk about is the title for the series is Gospel in Life, Grace Changes Everything. So how does the, the, the gospel of grace, how is that the foundation for all of this? Well, it is because we are recipients of grace that we can seek the shalom of Babylon. You see, it's, it's be, grace means 
that we have been given salvation and called to be the people of God, not because we deserved it, not because we are better than other people, not because of anything that we have done, but because God chose us. God chose us to be his people. We are undeserving. The Bible says we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. So, how should then we then treat the people who are still outside of the people of God? They are not our spiritual inferiors. We are Christians because God called us, not because we are superior. It is grace and mercy that puts us in a privileged position. The people of Babylon, the people outside are no worse than us. And so we have compassion for them. The love of God shows through us to them. God loves sinful people, people like us, and people who at the moment are outside the community of faith. The gospel of grace should make us humble. If the gospel does not make you humble, you don't understand the gospel the way that you should. But the gospel of grace also makes us obliged to God. It puts us in his debt. We owe God our obedience to his will, and we want to show our love for him and our gratitude toward him. When he tells us to live different and be outsiders, living in a way that other people around you will sometimes look at you a bit strange and will reject you, we do it. Because we are recipients of grace and mercy, we want to show our gratitude to God. And when God asks us to make sacrifices... We do it. Of course, we also know that the sacrifices that God asks us to make are not really sacrifices because God wants what is best for us and living his way is what's actually going to bring us the greatest joy and happiness. But even when we don't see that, we obey God because God has saved us and because we have received mercy and forgiveness from him that we did not deserve we are grateful to him and respond with obedience. The gospel of grace changes everything. It calls us to be in the world, but not of the world. And that means we need to be engaged with the culture around us. We can't say entertainment is worldly, therefore we shouldn't get involved. We must engage with entertainment, not in the same way that the world would, but in a way that brings salt and light to that part of our culture. We cannot say that politics is a dirty game, and so we should abstain from it. No, we must engage with the political system in a godly way and bring a godly influence into it. We cannot say that people's physical and economic suffering is beyond the scope of the spiritual ministry of the church. No, we must seek 
the welfare of the greater society around us. We cannot say that public education is controlled by secular liberals and therefore we should withdraw from it. No, we need Christian teachers in public schools. We need Christian families engaged in public schools. We need churches meeting in Wendler Middle School to be an influence with, for the gospel in a place like this. The world around us needs the church to engage. We need to seek the good of the world. Not only by preaching the gospel of grace, which of course is our, our biggest priority, but also by living out the implications of the gospel of grace and Jesus' call for us to be in the world, but not of the world. So that is our challenge, to be in the world, be engaged with the world without becoming of the world. And that is the balancing act that we must, we must navigate. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the grace and mercy that you have given us in our salvation. And we thank you that you, that you love us and that you have chosen us to be your people. And we pray that you would give us wisdom, give us guidance as we seek to, to live in our lives with maximum impact for the world around us and as sanctified and holy people for you. Lord, we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.